this summer, we've been going through what's called the wisdom literature. We started at the beginning of the year and talked about essentially all of Scripture, which was really hard to compress in that. Uh, but this summer, we're talking about the wisdom literature, and that's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, which I'm doing today. If you want to open your Bible to that, it's Proverbs 1. We're going to go through verses 1 through 7. Uh, Ecclesiastes. Um, what's the other one? Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, which Brian is do, doing, and I'm really tickled to death that I'm not doing that. I think any guy in here that has read that will probably give a hearty amen if it's not them as well. But uh, so I'm doing Psalms 1 through 3. We're going to look at what is this wisdom that's talked about in these. What is this wisdom? So I'm going to go ahead and read Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7, and we'll go for there. The word of the Lord reads this way. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of, king, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to, restrive, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, you... Uh, have provided us time once again today to look into your word, Lord. We certainly have our own ideas of what wisdom is, but we need to hear from you. Lord, would you give us the gift of the Holy Spirit today to open our hearts to your word Lord, I know that I specifically need your assistance to guide my thoughts and my mouth so that these words are pleasing and correct to you. Lord, thank you for the gift of Jesus, that name above all names, that wonderful name, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. So what is wisdom? That's what we're going to look at. And the way we're going to look at it, we're going to kind of try to answer a variety of things here. Uh, we need to know w what it is, who provided it, and to who he provided it to. So to look at this, we actually need to go all the way back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis, the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, where God said, he created all these things, and he kept saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. He created mankind, and even though man, it wasn't good for man to be alone, so he gave woman to be with him so he would not be alone, it was still good. And in all of this creation, God also imprinted his nature. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together before the creation of the world are all of one nature, even though they're three distinct persons. But he imprinted this nature on all of his creation. Well, we're well aware of 
the fall of Adam and Eve when Satan uh, sowed seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. Adam followed right along with it. He's just as guilty. And, and so they distrusted God. And then there was the fall. So even though mankind had this imprint of nature on him, it was forfeited. We all forfeited that. And all we were left with then was a sinful nature. So that is the design of this to begin with. So, so here we are with sinful natures living in a world that has his imprint on it. He even said it would be hard because of that. He said <clears throat> to Adam, you know, the, the dirt of the ground is going to make it hard to grow things. Eve, he said, you're going to have pains in childbirth. All these things you could see that our sinful natures and his holy nature grated against each other. And so we with this sinful nature are living in this world that has the imprint of his nature. Okay. So, who provided, well, who provided this wisdom? The Lord has provided this wisdom to us. Who is that? God has spent all this time and continues to do it. He's gathering his children. He's gathering a family to take into glory with him, as his word says, so it's for all of these children that he's gathering, past, present, and future, who only have this sinful nature, but need to understand his nature to live in this world. Okay, are you with me so far? Okay, so then we could, from that, we could surmise, let's make kind of a mission statement. Wisdom is the knowledge supplied by the Lord applied to life for godly living, okay? So it's the knowledge of him. He has to supply it because our sinful nature, we forfeit all of, all of that at the fall, so we don't have it. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 talks about all scripture is God breathed, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So he's provided this. We could look at this. It's got instruction, understanding, uh, wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. Uh, teach your youth to understand this. Somebody that is wise can continue to go back to him and continue to get wiser. But then he throws this one little thing in here at the end that kind of is the catchstone of all of this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What is the fear of the Lord? I know I struggled with this for a long time. I couldn't really understand it. It's not terror. It's not being frightened of him. It's being able to look at him and understand what it is. But it also is probably more aptly described as trust, love, respect, reverence, submission, and obedience. Okay, we say the fear of the Lord. 
sometimes we look at that. I want to I add one thing in here. As, as we have gone through this entire scope of the Bible, knowing that the Trinity are all of the same nature, couldn't we just as easily say the fear of Jesus is the beginning of wisdom? I know we may not like that, especially if we've had uh, a steady diet of looking at strictly only in the New Testament. Sometimes we've come away with the idea that Jesus is, is, is all love and, and God's kind of mean and nasty. He's, he's wrathful. But as we look through Scripture, we understand it's all the same nature. Jesus even said, I only do what the Father tells me to do, and, and I only do what he seemed to seem do. So they're all the same nature. So we could just as easily, and I think be theologically correct, if we said the fear of Jesus is the beginning of wisdom. Think about that one. So what does this wisdom do for us? I mean, let's, let's look at this picture. Do we got any kayakers in here? Anybody like to kayak? Uh, uh, uh. You use picture, we have to live in this world, but we don't know how to. So let's picture this. There's this river flowing down, flowing into glory to the restoration of all things when we will be completely freed from all of this, but we still have to live here in this meantime. So the Lord takes us, sets us down in a little kayak and puts a paddle in our hand and teaches us how to use it. He does that because there's rocks down here we got to avoid. There's rapids we got to avoid. Trees hanging over. All kinds of things that could cause collisions. And his purpose is to continue to get us safely into this restoration of all things, into his glory. So that's kind of a picture that I like to look at in my mind of what he's trying to do. This is all about him. He provides the knowledge of how to use the paddle, how to use it wisely, how to navigate this life in such a way that we recognize him as the one who gives us the information and the knowledge to do it. Okay. The wisdom, wisdom is knowledge supplied by the Lord, applied to life for godly living. Some of us may think that this little river is just kind of one of those lazy river things that we just lay on the raft and we float down there, but he's put a paddle in our hand. We have work to do in this life. We have actions to take in this life, just like when Adam and Eve, they had to work the garden. So we still have responsibilities. We still have actions we have to, have to act out. Okay, so what do we do with this wisdom? Start look, we know God's side of it. We can understand that. We put kind of wrap a little bit on that. What do we do with this wisdom? How do we handle that? Well, first thing that we have to actually admit to ourselves, so it's hard to really do, we actually have a sinful nature. And it controls a lot of the things that we do. We're impacted by Satan, whose role is to seek and kill and destroy. He told Cain, after he killed his brother, he said, sin's crouching at your door, waiting to devour you. So he's to seek and kill and destroy well, one of the things, just as he did in the garden, as he tries to do with us, he tries to create a distrust in the Lord so that we won't follow him. Maybe we'll hit those rocks. Maybe we won't be able to handle the rapids of this life. Okay, how we acknowledge and embrace this wisdom 
when there's so many other competing voices. The world is full of competing, competing voices. Sometimes we're not even aware that they're there. Uh, one of the things that, that, I, that I seem to have noticed, and I don't know if we're really aware of this, is the influence on us of the prevailing culture and how it's been influenced by something called postmodern philosophy. I, if you know what that is, that's great. If you don't, I'm trying to get some tidbits in there. Postmodern philosophy talks, and, and the influence of that is that uh, you are your own boss, you make your own destiny, you are autonomous from everything. Um, And you, to some degree, this whole life is purposeless. It's godless. And we're, not, we're, we're unaware many times how much that has influenced us. I remember re listening to a guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Do any of you guys know him? He's got a radio program as well, but he's a Christian apologist, which he goes and he talks about the Christian worldview. Many times he goes and debates. He was talking about a situation that might help us understand this a little bit. And I, I went back and read this. And it says, Ravi Zacharias, the Christian apologist, arrived at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus by taxi for a talk on Christian worldview as opposed to postmodern worldview. Unaware of his purpose, the taxi driver proudly informed him that the Wexner Center was the world's, world's first building constructed on postmodern philosophies. So if we think about a traditional building, we think about a foundation that's built on a grid. Well, the Wexner Center was built on multiple shifted grids. The walls are not par parallel or perpendicular. Pillars hold nothing up. Stairs go nowhere. Doors that open up to strange places. It's confusing to get around. It all seems to be without purpose. And it's pretty counterintuitive to our thought. Well, to this, as after this taxi driver explained to him what this postmodern building was about and all this, and Robbie quipped, he says, let's us hope it was not built on a postmodern foundation. Well, in a sense, it was. But even though they spent $43 million on this building, 10 years later, they had to shut it down for three years to invest $15 million into this building to repair basic design flaws that were causing the roof to leak, allowed sunlight in, and was harming the dam the, uh, damaging the art that was on display. So this is postmodern thought. We have this idea that it can be random and purposeless, but in a creation that is imprinted with God's nature, they try to create something that goes against that, and it fails. Now, even though they prepared this and they keep try to remain the charade of postmodern thought, they've had to put a modern foundation up underneath it so, it would, so the building would continue to stand and the art would be, not be damaged anymore. One of the other things that postmodern influences as individuals, it's me-centered. It's all about me. My way. Everything's to make me happy. Another thing that it really influences out of this is the right to your own viewpoint 
and that all those viewpoints are equally valid and should be respected. If we look at some of the things that are happening in our world, we talk about tolerance and intolerance that are there. We see that playing out, but all viewpoints are equally valid. The biggest thing it creates out of because it's so me-centered is pride. How does pride impact us as believers when we read Scripture? I'm going to give you an example. There, there's numerous, but I'm going to take one, and it goes right to the heart of this. And there's a lot of different thoughts, a lot of competing thoughts on this. Ephesians 5, the last half of Ephesians 5, talks about husbands and wives. It says in there, Wives, submit to husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I don't think there was anybody in this room that would, that would say that submit it is, not a, it is not a negative word, especially in this case. So what we do in these situations like that, we'll look at Scripture, and we go through the lens of our own, maybe our own pride, and we'll say, well, I don't like that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to deal with that. Uh, I even heard a preacher speaking the, talking the other day says, maybe we've just been reading this wrong all along. The one thing that we seem to not do as believers is to really look and see, what is this trying to say? What is, what's another example of submission that we know? Jesus submitted to the Father. There's no way we can look at that and say that that's bad. But because culture has influenced us so much in this word submission that we've completely lost its meaning. But we won't go so far as to look and see what does that mean if Christ submits to God and it's a good thing. We'll stop there many times because of our own pride. C.S. Lewis has, gave me a quote. All of us a quote. So page 95, Mere Christianity, in case you have a copy. He says, in God you come up against something that in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God like that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. As far as believers, he adds this, this part. That raises a terrible question. How can people who are obviously eaten up with pride say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious. He said, I'm afraid it means they're worshiping a God of their own imagination. So even with this, if there's something in Scripture we don't agree with, we'll create a God. We want to live our lives a certain way. We'll create a God that is okay with what we do. That's dangerous. That's prideful. That's not listening to instruction. You remember how the last portion 
7 says, fools despise wisdom and knowledge. Pride closes the gate to this knowledge that God has so graciously provided. And pride is absolutely opposed to, to, to the humility that we need to receive it. A couple of weeks ago, jo, uh, Kevin spoke about Job and how he went through his trials and, uh, you know, at the hand of Satan, how, they, like, how, how awful that was. And, and at a time in the, he goes, I, I want to bring my case. I'm going to talk to God directly about this. I'm going to talk to him directly about this. God questions him. Where were you? Who do you think you are? And the end of it, Job puts his hand over his mouth. He's really humbled. Last week, Rusty had a group of guys in this row right here, the second row, that are going through the Teen Challenge Ministry for Recovering Addicts. Through their lives and addiction, it was all about me. This feels good. I know addiction has many other facets to it, but, you know, as a start, this feels good. I want to please me. I may hurt my family, all these other things. That's just collateral damage to me serving me. Those guys were humbled so they could receive this instruction from the Lord. The Lord so graciously said, after he gave his first commands in Exodus 20, he's talking to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6, and he says three times in three different ways, do these commands and it'll go well for you. You'll prosper in the land that I provide you. Your children will do well. Your city will do well. The offer of, of Ecclesiastes, who we'll, we'll see in a couple of weeks as we talk about that, talks about all the vanity of these things he's pursued in life. And at the end of it, he says, the chief, chief purpose of man is to fear God and keep his commands. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your pathway straight. We know that. We've got a plaque on the home, uh, at home that says that. The next verse, 7, says, Be not wise in your own eyes. So there's a warning with an instruction. Uh, only a good father the Lord we have has provides in this way for his children, even if they don't understand. James 1, 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, reproach, and it will be given to him. So he's there to provide that for us. Phil Wing, some of you guys know Phil Wing. He's a worship leader at Apex. He quoted somebody, and I don't know who it was, but he said, as we pursue this, as we take these actions, he says, do what you ought to do until your ought to do becomes your want to do. You may not understand it. You may not like it. But if he's trying to guide us and navigate us down this world that he's created, we should do it, even if we don't understand. But he brings that understanding to us if we'll ask. There's a stark difference between a heart that says no 
and one that says, I don't understand, will you teach me? The Lord could say that a fool who shuts this gate to knowledge and wisdom, a fool is one who shuts this gateway to knowledge and wisdom because of their own pride. But the other he's talking about that's asking is one that's becoming wise. What we need to do probably on a daily basis is ask ourselves, which one of these are, are we? You know, as we look at this, some of this sounds pretty dismal. But the Lord ends this proverb, one, with this. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. He's waiting and he's willing if we'll come with all of our hearts. What did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. So as I close in prayer, Duke and Hallie are going to come up. We're going to do something a little bit different. They're going to perform a song, and, and how about if we just remain seated here and take in the words of the song as it probably speaks much better than I can ever do up here. So let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you that you have not only adopted us and saved us from ourselves. You give us wisdom and instruction and knowledge how we can navigate this life, this river of life, to avoid the pitfalls that Satan wants to throw in front of us so we can live lives that are godly and glorifying to you as this river makes its end to that restoration of all things to your glory, where we, we, will, we will be free of these sinful natures that we have. Lord, you're so good and gracious. Incline our hearts, even at this moment, to seek you with everything that we have. Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.